Hey, this is John Willis again. It is the Profound Podcast, for whatever that means. I've got another really cool guest, an old friend. I, I think we've we'll talk about how long we've known each other, but uh, you know, a champion of the DevOps movement. And, um, and you know, the one thing I'll say when I get started is that um, you know I interact with a lot of DevOps groups, and then there are certain people who are leaders that I, you just naturally see their leadership. And although I don't think I will ever work for a big company. You know, there is sort of a list of people, you know, Jason Cox at Disney, Courtney Kisser, um, Scott Prue, and uh, and Paula Thrasher. Paula, would you introduce yourself? Oh, thank you. It was very flattering. Well, uh, Paula Thrasher, I am the Senior Director of Infrastructure at PagerDuty, uh, which is actually, for me, a really small company uh, in, compared to my previous company, which was United Technologies, uh, which is now Raytheon. And then before that, I was with General Dynamics. So I've been with some very, very, very large <laughs> companies, uh, Dow Industrials, no less. Uh, and I'm now really excited to be um, helping PagerDuty on our journey uh, as we grow and expand our product. Yeah, so that has to be interesting because I, you know, and you know, we'll talk about but your your background has been thrown into most complicated places to <laughs> to make change. So since this is the Deming podcast, uh, you know, I really want to talk about your leadership style. We've had some um, podcasts in the past and other other venues. And I love your thoughts on leadership, um, especially in like the ugliest, hardest way to, to change things. But, you know, to start off with, uh, you know, I like to start off with like Dr. Deming. Um, you, what are your thoughts about Dr. Deming in, in general, impact to the industry, um, just overall related? To yeah, I mean, um, I guess, you know, I have a couple of things that, that kind of come to mind when I think about Deming. I mean, one thing is early in my career when I was still sort of a you know programmer <laughs> before I before I got to be boss, uh, you know I worked in what was sort of cognitive systems engineering. I was working on systems that we were very concerned about the human computer interaction. So um, I worked on something that was for anesthesiologists. I worked on a control room for a ship. We worked on um, uh, you know, things like that, where the decision maker, you know, there was human error and if human error occurred, people died, right? <laughs> Frankly, I don't really, you know, <laughs> the simplest way to say it. And there was a lot of theory about how do the experts interact with the system? So not just, you know, so I was sort of radiantly absorbing all of these like systems theory, like they're not just staring at this screen. Um, I think actually the control room was the interesting, it was um, redesigning part of the control room, the Aegis class cruiser, which is used by both the US and Canadian military. And it's like, you know, classic, it's what you think of, the, you know, the bridge of a ship, right? It's like Hollywood. There's a lot going on. So you're not just building your system, you're building the system of systems. And I think one of the things that Deming, like to me, the sort of insight that he brings that was really revolutionary was this idea of like, you don't manage an evac, you manage a system. Like that there is the systems, just the whole systems thinking approach that he sort of has to how you're leading. Um, I think that's a really unique, like, I think that's something unique he sort of brought to the management <laughs> table, if you will. Uh, because I think that's really important context is like, we don't, we don't do anything like absent, you know, the culture we're in, the company we're in, the time we're in, um, the problem we're trying to solve. There's, there's, there are in fact a lot of moving parts. Um, I think that systems idea is actually really, um, like, I think that's a really important one. Yeah. And that's definitely, you know, it, it, it is, you know, uh, the more and more I dive into, you know, I'm in this sort of like never ending funnel of like just Deming isms. Right. And, you know, like every time you lift your head up, you say, well, that, like if I had to describe it with one phrase, it's systems thinking, you know, and uh, and I was asked, you know, a couple of times lately, you know, it's, I sort of joke it. I've been bored into um, a lot of times in my current role. I'm the juggler, you know, like bring in John, you know, because he wrote the down, you know, like, and, like I get it. And it's not that I'm stupid and I don't add value, but like there is sort of this like the guy who wrote the handbook. Would you like to talk to him? And I feel like I'm sort of juggling sometimes of just, you know. You know, being the sort of the clownish, maybe I'm going off too far. This, but um, the point is, I've been asked, so I, you know, I get their attention. I talk about most systems thinking, and I talk about different ideas. Um, and um, and I sometimes when I win their trust, they'll sort of get to the like uh, the, the sort of meta questions, like John, if 
like if there was one thing, and, and, and it's not how they phase it, but this is what they're saying. Like, what should we focus on most? And then I stop and I'm like, okay, can this person absorb this answer? <laughs> you know, like they have the, 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 not the intelligence, but the sort of the, the DevOps intelligence or transformational intelligence to accept this, this answer. And I'll say, if you want me to be really transparent, if I ran an organization like yours, I would basically try to create um, a systemic mindset around systems thinking. Because I think it, the umbrella of it, of all the things that ills us, siloization, all those things, if everybody was continually improving on this mindset of systems thinking, I think you'd knock off like, you know, you know 80% of the DevOps anti-patterns. Um, yeah. And I think that's a good lead into your thoughts about leadership. And, and but um, I'd like to hear you sort of in context of system thinking, because I think it really is an umbrella for. Yeah, I mean, I think, um... Well, I think that systems thinking is kind of like DevOps at its core, right? Because I'll go back to sort of how I stumbled into the world of DevOps. Um, I had been a developer for a number of years. Um, and then I'd been, you know, sort of a lead developer and all those things. And I, you know, I frankly had like a two hour commute to Maryland that I wasn't really keen about at the time. And I went to my boss and I said, I can't do this anymore. I gotta do something different. And they sort of came back and said, well, why don't you be our like CIO? Why don't you run the IT department? And I thought like, wait, I'm the developer. Like what? No, that wasn't, <laughs> I just want a different job. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> and probably I should mention they had just fired the previous two people who had been that role. Oh, so no. it was sort of like, wait, are you trying to send me a message? Like, wait, <laughs> what's going on? But um, anyway, long story short, I ended up taking that role and leading the IT department for, you know, fundamentally a software company. And in that role, I, I kind of quickly realized that like, you know, when I was in the software seat, I was always a you know, stupid infrastructure team where they just push my updates and stop, you know, fussing at me. And when I was on the infrastructure side, I thought, oh my God, I don't want software developers anywhere near my servers. They'll break them. <laughs> so I, I sort of like had this moment where I had lived on both sides of mm-hmm. this silo. Uh, and it was a silo very much. This right. was 2010. It was absolutely yeah. a silo in 2010. You know, developers wrote code. Um, we were an agile team and doing at that point, you know, most of our teams probably deployed maybe every other week, maybe monthly, which was radical in 2010, right. uh, frankly, you know, to production. Right. Yeah. Um, and the infrastructure was quote in the way, the only thing preventing them from deploying daily was quote the infrastructure. And then I got to the infrastructure side and I thought, well, wait a minute. That's, that's a very simplistic view of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Easier said than done <laughs> over here. You know, I have to manage you and all the other teams that want to push and I have to manage security updates and I have to manage. So the DevOps aha moment was like, this is not this throw it over the wall thing. We actually have to build the total system that takes the thing you want to deploy gets it into production. And then by the way, operate it in production. It doesn't just like in production, walk away. Right, right, right. It doesn't end, yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) somebody else's problem. That whole system has to be aligned to work. And, And we started just, once we approached the problem that way, we started solving things that way. And somewhere along the line, I had a software engineer that worked for me that had, um, he'd been at Velocity that year and he had, yeah, I heard about this thing called DevOps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like, okay, that sounds cool. <laughs> I guess that's what we're doing, you know. Yeah, so yeah. It, you know, the, but I think the the how we got into that and how many of the early people in the you know the the early adopters of the DevOps movement was they were agile people who realized that the whole system wasn't agile, just this one part. That's right. That's From a systems right. thinking standpoint, that wasn't good enough. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, that's like in the way back. Right. And if you fast forward, I think one thing that's interesting to me, um, you know, so at PagerDuty, we, we do full systems ownership. And I think there was a lot of leadership in the company many years ago to kind of drive this idea of, you know, you code it, you ship it, you go and call for it. Right. It's yours. Right. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't absolve us of having like systems challenges. Right. We're, we're growing. The engineering organization is getting bigger and, you know, even just this like last week, you know, teams were kind of having, this just sort of a natural scaling issue, right? Like I've, I've had to create more teams. So we have to say, well, okay, well you own these three things and you own these, you know, and previously it was all one team, 
well, stuff is blurry sometimes between boundaries, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and the teams kind of needed to like, you know, the platform team needed to talk to the delivery team about, well, I want to, you know, can I use this thing you guys own to do this, you know, solve this problem I have. And like, there are always every IT organization is inherently complete. Like it just, there's a systems problem at every IT organization, whether you're a software company or whether you're a, you know, big, you know, Dow industrial (laughs) making there's just because there are significantly more complexity in what we run. So we all manage systems and then, you know, the people that run them and the (laughs) organizational work in. It's funny. I've been with a lot of startups and, you know, I always think about the scale, the complexity of scale organizations, right. Which is, it has its own, and then that's an area I definitely want to dive in with you. But as you bring this up, you know, I think about my experience with startups. They have this emergent complexity, right, where you actually see it happening. You know, there there is no HR department, you know, so that and then all of a sudden you have an HR department. And now there is, you know, sort of constraints on like travel or going to, you know, and and then same thing with like you start, um, you know, a support system. You know, in the beginning, it's just developers answering, you know, problems. Right. And then so. Then it's like the it becomes a support versus developers, and and then you get big enough where you have infrastructure, and you need operations for infrastructure, and and you, it is an interesting phenomenon to, you know, to to watch. For me, the couple of startups I've been or I've gotten to see firsthand those emergent complexities. Um, yeah. Like I don't want to go too far into this, although this is a fascinating subject. Like. I, I, I even get to see sort of Dunbar's in, I've seen Dunbar happen yeah. while I, you know, at Docker, like I get to see this yeah. whole thing of, of, you know, these sort of patterns of, but um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I totally get that. Like that, that as you're scaling the, the, those complexities are in your face basically. Right. So. Yeah, they always are. And I think that it's a, um, I, you know, I've had kind of a really, uh, like just varied career, I think, for lack of a better way to say it. You know, I was thinking I was at a startup those many years ago, um, you know, where we were at the scale where like when you push to build the production, you just sort of shouted like, hey, because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. we all sat in the same room. We really yeah, yeah, tough, totally, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I, I think to like uh, some of the work um, I had the privilege of doing with United Technologies was working with the Geared to Fan and the um, commercial engine team. And, they run this gigantic avionics system that's like, you know, the numbers of teams, you know, probably about 600 developers all working on the same, you know, system. Uh, you can't just shout over the cube yeah. wall. Yeah. Hey, I'm yeah. going to run a build. That's, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and they were doing some really great stuff. Um, but the complexity of what you have to manage at that like team of teams, um, you know, is, is a very different um challenge than what you have when you're a 10 person startup and you're trying to just like are you growing right? yeah. you're wearing all the hats at that point so that's one of my favorite topics with you is that you know the 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 times that we either after an event hang out and, and eat and drink beer or whatever or you know where we get to sort of have these sort of professional encounters um is your thoughts about how you encounter from a leadership perspective these complexities, you know, like we, we, we banty around like DevOps, you know, change, you know, everybody should be changing. And we use a lot of sort of platitudish ways to describe it, but I love how you sort of walk through like these large organizations and how do you get people to change and, and the thoughts around that. So it's part of your career too, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I kind of stumbled into that as, as uh, my shtick is, is doing a lot of transformation work. And, and, and actually I would say, um, you know, lately, uh, one of the mantras I've been repeating, my team's probably sick of hearing me saying it, is um, when you're a manager, you don't like you don't do the work. You own the system of work, right? You are not the one that needs to be owning the work. That's your team, right? You own the system of work, and the farther up you go in the organization, the bigger the system of work you own. Right. Yeah, and and I think that that um, and and you know sometimes you have to push up against a system above you, you know, or beside you, like right. So 
as I, if I put that framing, uh, you know, since we're talking systems thinking about the change management piece, um, you know, I think when we first met, it was probably 2014, actually, is uh, my guess. Right. I mean, yeah. that, uh, U.S. Customs and, uh, or no, I take that back. I was at... Uh, well, I know you were working with... I was at Immigration Service at the time. I was, well, I was you were working with Damon, too, and Damon kept telling me about this amazing person. <laughs> so, uh, Damon <laughs> yeah. Edwards. Yeah, right. yeah so yeah. it was, uh, yeah, Damon Edwards and I actually uh, get to work together again. So that's kind of a full that's circle great. there. That is but, awesome. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, at the time, you know, I was leading this large organization and they were doing Agile, right? Like, you know you know good agile gold star but they weren't getting results right so like they were doing all the agile check boxes but they weren't getting the outcome they needed they weren't actually going faster mm -hmm. and and it was really a systems problem right so and actually that's where you know damon came in and we did some value street mapping and and helped with recommending the right kinds of automation and that sort of thing and and it actually you know that automation piece became run <laughs> became run deck so yeah, yeah, yeah. um kind of a long journey there but but the the why it wasn't working and it's funny because i think i've i've encountered a couple different places since then where i've seen this very same pattern is somebody optimizes part of the organization mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know the typical agile one is the developers but sometimes i've seen it people do some super awesome cloud infrastructure stuff but then the development team's not optimized i mean i've seen a couple different right. ways of people doing the same pattern where one aspect of the business gets updated but not the whole system and it's great if you've got an agile team and they can crank features, but if they can't get those into production, you know, like as soon as they're done, <laughs> you know, that's a bottleneck that prevents you from building that value. If the upstream piece, if the business does a once a year, you know, planning exercise and then like walks away, right. it never checks the market or reassesses their position or you know, you're, you can have a really great engine cranking out capability, but they're never going to deliver business value because they're not realigning to, you know, market realities. So I think that that's kind of, um, that was something I, I uncovered really a lot in that particular role of how to kind of coax a system, including some parts of the system that didn't belong to me. There you go. Uh, right? That's so, even harder, right? Right. I mean, it's easy enough to be like, well, you work for me. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, you can pull the boss cord sometimes. Um, uh, that, that doesn't always work. I mean, people will passively aggressive, you know, resist you regardless. I think anyone in leadership knows that that's a scenario as well. But, but you can reasonably exercise control over your direct span of control. Right. And just, you know, thou shalt. Um, but you can't tell your peers what to do. That's right. right. You can't just go, you know, boss your way into telling the rest of the organization necessarily. Um, but that's the system of work, right? That's the whole system, not just the organizational boundary. So that's why I'm still, I continue to be a fan. I've, I've done value streams for, you know, years since. Um, I've even done them virtually now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're yeah, all, yeah. you know, behind Zoom. Um, for their ability to get people to look at the system, to see the system, because that's the other characteristic I think that's hard. It's hard in any organization. I think it's especially hard in software. It's invisible. So there's no way to see the system if you don't create that visual. No, I, I'm, I love extreme mapping. And, you know, Damon, who's to turn me on to it, and I think probably that's how you guys probably met. And um I think that's what it is. It's it, in one way is it's, I, I think of it as these empathetic transactions, right? Like in, in, in the example where can you brute force tell another group that you have no control over to do X, Y, Z, or you bring everybody in and they get to see, you know, Oh, the reason I never did that is I just thought you, you all were being lazy, you know, but I had no idea there was this constraint, you know, theory constraint thing in the middle of what you had to do. So I, you know, again, you find all these, like, you know, the assumptions that people were making about the other groups, you get these ahas, like, oh, I never understood why right. you all did it this way, you know? Yeah. And I think people don't always, you know, you live in your kind of world, yeah. right? You don't appreciate what happens when the, you know, piece of work passes your desk and goes to the next one. Right. And I, I know like in a couple of times that we've done these, 
you know, like an upstream person will say, well, yeah. And then I give you the build and then you guys take forever. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. You know, and the ops team goes, yeah. And your build's broken and your, <laughs> and your database is, you know, and I spend all day fixing it. So, you know, you guys don't fall over. And the, the upstream team had no idea that, that what they were doing was yeah. that busted. Right. And, and I, like I said, there's usually probably low grumblings. They probably kind of know, but there's something to the um, visualization of it that helps. I mean, it's not always perfect. No, no. I mean, organizations have, you know, people, you know, dynamics as well. But I think in a, an organization that is aligned on the same goal of delivering value, if you put that context on things of measuring how we actually are doing at delivering value, it gives you kind of a a north star that you can align people on. But you know, it's funny about value stream mapping and and you know Damon and you know and Alex back when they were doing it, they were really sort of a two or three man sh- shop depending on who was there at the time. But um, but the thing was they had this luxury of telling people, sorry, it was going to be. I think their original was like three days, you know, and people, oh my god, how am I going to take thirty people and take them out of their day job to take three days that would you know like wait a minute you're like you're you're getting terrible outcomes you've got you know like you know like you can't do the real math that three days means nothing but it's funny when i talk to even people now you know they this notion of a sort of pragmatic value stream mapping that it, it all just goes back to leadership right like in that like if the if somebody in an organization is like I think this high stream map means great. I've seen Paul talk about it. Damon, I've seen different people. It's, it's perfect for us. And then they go, you know, they, they solicit maybe an organization that's really good at it. And they come in and say, yeah, well, you know, it's going to be three days. Oh, how am I going to sell that to my manager? Three days taking, you know, and as opposed to a manager, we're like, yeah, no, I think I, I, first off, I trust your opinion, right? You know, like, and then, yeah. like, okay, well, you know, it seems a lot, but like, you know, I have you in this position for a reason. But like, that's the, 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 the mismatch, the mismatch, right? Is that it just seems that it just comes down to at some level, I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, I, I you know, the, the thing I always think about these days when I talk to Courtney and now I talk to you is like, we can go on and on about all these things that, you know, that you are great at in leadership. But the thing that perplexes me is I go into organization after organization and see bad leadership. And I just <laughs> wonder, like, why, you know, what what is it that they miss? Is it they don't see the system view or they don't, um, there's no trust or? You know. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I can always say this. I'll say, first off, the three-day comment I'm going to add there. Um, I did some stuff actually um uh, with customs and border protection, the, with the customs organization in particular, uh, and we spent three hours, uh-huh. and we got you, some, you can do it. Okay, all right. You know, and and it was not maybe as in depth, um, but we got you know we got the security organization, we got the delivery organization, we got the development and the product teams and everybody in, and we came up with some really good like yeah these are these are some you know these are constraints these are these this is kind of. Um, and we had to focus mostly on what's automated and what's not. And we kind of realized, oh, you know, there's this manual step here. And this is this is the highest impact to automate because it's clearly what's clogging the works, right? So it doesn't have to take three days. I think the overall idea, though, that I see a lot of people get pulled into is uh, they just get sucked into like, letting their calendar drive their priorities, mm-hmm. letting their, yeah. letting the fires drive their priorities. And they never like, that's, that's, that's just kind of like letting, you know, letting your calendar boss you around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not um, like the actual, you know, to actually lead means to like zoom back every now and then and go, what's I'm back to my system of work. You own the system of work. You own that being successful for the mission you've been given. And if it's not successful, like, I, you know, I don't know what you're going to deliver a value in that three days. <laughs> you were going to, you know, like, like your, your single focus needs to be making that overall system successful. And I think sometimes I, I, I don't know if it's because we, we don't really train managers the way we used to. I think there's not as much leadership training. Um, I was, I was fortunate to benefit from, you know, quite a bit in my career, but I think that's actually unusual. 
Um, no, you, you're right. I mean, I, I remember being the, the one time I had a real significant other than sort of startup, you own this group, but I was a chief capital and I, I ran a team of about 25 people. Right. And, and they sent me to a class in Crotonville, actually. Which, right. Yeah. They're yeah, famous. Right. I mean, big time. Yeah. I had no idea the, what I was doing in that, in terms of like, now I say I've been to Crotonville. I've been to Crotonville, right? But, but, but back <laughs> then I had no idea. Like, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but it was called manager modeling. And it, out of every class, including technical classes I've taken in my career, it's, it's at least a top five class. And, and I, you know, it's somewhere in my garage, but it was, you know, like you said, it truly is yeah. uh, you it, know, like diverse, think- teaching diversity back in um, like, what was it like 93 or 94, 1994, right? As a main sort of pillar to not only understanding right. how you interact with, you know, yeah, you're right. But- it, it, uh, so I think. Um, but I think there's a lot of ways to like get that leadership. I mean, even this, like just, you know, going to conferences, listening to podcasts, reading books. I read a ton of books. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think just what I see and and even conversations I have with the managers that have worked for me over the year. Um, I, I remember I had, uh, you know, I had a, you know, you manage managers of managers, right? When you lead a large organization. And I had... Um, I had a recent manager who had been promoted to be sort of a portfolio lead. And then I had another very experienced portfolio manager. And my new portfolio manager kind of came into my office, like complaining. And so he was saying, um, I'll change names, you know, Joe. Yeah, right? yeah, Joe is yeah. never working. I see him in his office. He's not in meetings. He's whatever. And I am in meetings all day long and I can't get anything done. And blah, 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 blah. And I don't understand why I'm not paid more than, you know, or whatever, like why, why I'm not, you know, treated better than Joe and, you know, I'm doing better than him. And I kind of, you know, it's just like when you like do the boss thing, you just sort of sit back <laughs> and you go, are you? Joe's <laughs> <laughs> doing a great job. And like, but he's not in meetings all the time. They're doing something right. He has time to think. Yeah. yeah. He has time to lead. And He's empowering his team. He is not in meetings because his team yeah. is running it. And and I, you know, my other, you know, we'll call my other manager Andrew, right? Was like very, you know, sort of like this isn't, you know, this isn't hustle. This isn't how you get ahead. And it was like, I think you need to reevaluate what success looks like. If you're actually leading an organization and your calendar is full 40 hours of the week, yeah, you're not leading, you're in meetings. <laughs> you know, and uh, I love, you know, I, I continue to take lessons from Domenica de Grandis because I am constantly fighting back from, I probably all of us are, from the, you know, getting swamped, taking on too much, saying no. to do too much, right? Saying no, and, yeah, yeah. and you lose, you lose the the lesson, which is that you you have this job to make your team successful. And if you get sucked into you know, too much um, noise, you're not going to do the one thing that was important that you do from a leadership standpoint. Well, that's the calendar thing too. I, I, you know, I have this little bit of a pet peeve. I mean, if I, you know, we're all as busy as that, you know, like any one of us, like, you know, like we pick like a handful of people that we know, like we're all busy people, right? We do reasonably, you know, I wouldn't say important, but like it's work that a lot of people depend on. And, And there's always this characteristics of like, if, if I ping a certain person, they're like, I have no time. Really? For like 30 minutes? You have no time? Because I just got a ping from somebody who's having depression in their job and their work. I'm going to spend an hour with them on Monday. And I'm just as busy as anybody. So I do think this, this idea, people, how they think about their calendar. I love that idea of the calendar controlling you versus you sort of controlling the calendar. Yeah. yeah. And I think... Um, Yeah. I mean, there's space for a lot of things. I mean, it's space for the unplanned. I mean, I think a lot of management obviously is people management, right? So if you don't have time to like drop everything and deal with people issue, you know, there's a capacity problem you've got there. Um, But even just sort of like, you know, assessing like what's, you know, how do I need to move this forward? How do I need to like reflect giving yourself? And it's not every week. I mean, you know, I will tell you like last week, for instance, my calendar was a disaster, right? (laughs) And, but making space deliberately and just sort of like looking at this going, um, 
you know, where's the stupid here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, right. where is something we're doing? I mean, I think that work in progress is a thing. Like, where is something that I'm doing that we shouldn't be doing? Right. Like we agreed to do something because we didn't have the guts to tell the organization that that this wasn't important. Or well, that's a that's a system thinking, like in a sort of Jesse Robbins way, right? Like, find just keep looking for the stupid, right? So yeah. work your way out, 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 of, out, of, out, of. and and you're right. Like you said earlier, you're, I guess your sphere of influence of what you manage in as you move up, you have a bigger system, right? And and then just yeah. taking the time to sort of not tell people I, I was listening to one of the things you said that in a, a previous podcast we had which was you know when you're a developer you felt you could do anybody's job but then when you move to operations like that was not the same thing and then as you get to an organization where like maybe 600 700 people you manage it, it's just impossible to think that you could actually have the 600 plans that okay you know bob's yeah. gonna do this from eight to nine tom's gonna do sue's gonna do that like it just like you have to elevate your. your yeah, and you, there's a, there's always such a fine line you have to walk. Um, you need to know enough. I mean, there is the like mm-hmm. I like the gimbal walk idea. The idea that you do need to sort of go down to the organization. You know, do a code review. Do it like actually have somebody walk you through their day, like through the actual work. Right. I think that's valuable for you to actually understand what's really happening and not get sort of the management smoke layer that happens. Right. They right. Yeah. Move okay. their way up to you. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think it was probably good for my leadership that I got moved into an organization that I was not, you know, and I, I had some really good mentors who kind of like, you know, kicked me in the behind a little bit as I was trying to get into my, you know, team's business about that. Because, yeah, I know when I was a leader of a software team, I was, I was like micromanaging my software engineers for sure, because I could, right. right, I could do their job. And, um, as I led more infrastructure stuff, you know, I knew some things I had been the person running the build server. So it wasn't like I, you know, I knew the Linux, right, I knew some right. basics, but you know, I, I distinctly remember like, uh, this was data center era before, well, Amazon existed, but it was, <laughs> right. you know, <laughs> it was running out of Jeff Bezos truck, maybe that year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we had a data center and I remember we had like a storage array and, you know, I had built servers, but I had never built a storage array. That was like a whole universe of things that right. i had not worked with before um and you know there were some technical issues and I, I and i felt like i had to jump in i thought i can't i don't have the foggiest technical clue about what's going on here i can't jump in and fix it mm-hmm. it was sort of like this you know i had a, a mentor um that was you know it was a former army um colonel that that worked for us and i uh, went into his office and i was like bill i don't know what to do i can't jump in and fix it for him and he's like you're not supposed to go fix it for him yeah, yeah. you're supposed to figure out how to help them fix it yeah yeah <laughs> you know and, and 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 he had some you know his advice was sort of bring in a third person but like i think that moment in leadership where you have to like realize that if you are problem solving your team is not yeah, yeah. you know if you are if if you are if everybody brings you the decisions, they are not deciding. If everybody has to bring you, you know, like, like people, sometimes I see managers get busy because they don't truly let their team lead. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I know, I remember we talked about uh, David Marquette and turn the ship around, right. And, right. and that whole notion of intent and, you know, to bring it back to Deming, you know, Deming sort of uh, 14 points, they, they sort of bleed of this intent nature of, and, but it's interesting, like your story is sort of a, um, a forced convergence and even David Marquette is a forced convergence. Yeah, it's really the same story, right? Like you didn't like, know how that stuff works. Yeah, like I, like I can't manage a new nucleus hub and, and pass an inspection in this amount of town. So what do I have to do? I have yeah. to get through an intent. And, and I, I, I absolutely love that story. And I, I do feel like I sort of had that same moment, right? I couldn't, man, I had to do it this way. Um, I, you know, I will tell you, honestly, that's probably continues to be my, my biggest management challenge is conveying intent and, and really getting a large set of organization people aligned. It, it's hard. It actually takes a lot of work <laughs> to yeah. get people aligned in the right way. But I, I continue to be convinced that that is like the most important thing you can do as a leader is to get the organization aligned and then give them that visual of the system, you know, like 
have them be able to see how their piece, you know, impacts the larger system. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it also kind of hits like the whole mastery, uh, you know, the Daniel Pink, the autonomy mastery purpose, right? That if you have a, a, a goal you're contributing to and you know how your expertise contributes to this larger, you know, mission, it's a lot more exciting to work in that environment. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, say, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you can too. From my own career, times where I've really bought into the corporate, you know, there's been a really clear corporate vision and I knew how I was contributing to it. Like, that's fun. That's a great place to be. At the times where, like, you know, the company strategy is <laughs> waving and you're like, I don't really know how I'm helping. What are we doing? You know, like, that's a, um, you know, that's not, that's a, that's not as fun well, you uh, know, I think for a lot of people. And I don't think it's just like for leaders. I think for the no, it's in general, line, right. No, in fact, you know, just, you just reminded me of, you know, the opportunities I've had to talk to uh, Christina Maslach, right. The, uh, the probably leading authority on organizational burnout. Right. And, and there's this, um, the MBI, I know you're, it's sort of the Maslach burnout inventory, which is basically one of the canonical tests for organizational burnout. And there's three categories that the uh, psychometric survey uses. The one is, you know, sort of overwork. I, I would say that, you know, yes, that has been a problem in our industry, but like, I think, I, I would say we were more healthy, you know, in our sort of spectrum of DevOps or sort of software development. But the other two is, I think, hit exactly what you were talking about. Like the third piece is efficacy. Right, and right. a big part of burnout is, you're not seeing the connection between what you do and the value that it adds, you know, particularly back to you. Um, and, and that is, and I've talked to Christina about this, not like sort of academically, but, but like that could be one of the biggest um, pain points in our industry, software development IT. But yeah. then the second piece is, is the cynicism, which is the other part of Synex intent, which is the trust. Hmm. But you have to have this, that the cynicism comes from you're just tired of, you know, um, you're just tired of like, um, you know, coming up with an idea and told like, you know, not now. And yeah. then so you get to a point where you're just like, you know, in your head, everybody else is an idiot and just, I'm just going to do what I do. Yeah. It, that's always a delicate line to walk to um, in terms of like, you want, if you want to really encourage innovations and these ideas from the bottoms up, you can't squish them every time they happen, right? Yeah, yeah. And I do think if people get that organizational um, memory of like, the last time I tried to bring this up, it didn't yeah, work. Totally. It didn't work, right? There's there's sort of a cynicism, right? I learned how I think as well, you know, I think from the DevOps standpoint, um, there's a there's a great thing I think that's accomplished by, by building these, you know, high-performing, DevOps organizations, you know, they have this continuous delivery pipeline, right? You start coding and it's in production, right? And it, like mm -hmm. you, there's nothing worse. I mean, I think about a project that I worked on. Yeah. It was probably 1996 that I worked on this project that had started in 1991. Then the internet happened and they're like, we're going to make it a web thing, <laughs> you know, like whatever. And it was like 96, maybe 97. And I, you know, I worked on this thing for like a year and then I rolled off onto some other thing because uh, I was going, it was driving me crazy, frankly. And uh, they put it in production in 2003. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> is that crazy? So, and the thing is the code that I wrote actually went into production, like, you know, eight years later or something crazy. Like that's the, that's the worst. That is yeah, yeah. like. And it's not just the sort of not the feedback loop, right? The beautiful thing of just developing general developing things is the feedback like this, but, yeah. but then that, you, you put in that sort of uh, waterfall is constraint. So much like so much joy and being able to like, you know, solve the problem, code the thing, go, yes, it works. And then, you know, hit, <laughs> hit yeah, go, yeah, yeah. you know, merge, merge the pull request. And then it's in, it's, go, it's running. Right. Yeah, yeah. That feedback loop is awesome. And I think that's, a, that's, that's like developer joy when you get that. I think where you, people get really frustrated, even when you have that, um, like that, that to me is like an essential. If you don't have that in your organization, if, you're, if your developers can't like start working on something and have it running in production in like, I don't know, like a week. Pretty quick. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, takes, it takes a couple of days Pretty to code something, yeah. right? Like, you know, somewhere between three days and a week, you know, like if they can't go from, 
you know, problem to go solve to the things running in production under a week. Certainly not a year, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Fix that first. But even for organizations that have that, you can still create frustration by having them do stupid stuff. And they go, why am I working on this feature? This isn't what I would do. This is, you know, like not listening to the people who are living in the code, you know, and letting them have some, like, again, give them problems to solve instead of, you know, features or systems to update, you know. Well, that goes back to the stupid, right? Because, you know, like if, you know, I've been in these large banks where I've gotten to interview, you know, hundreds and 300, 400 people. And and you talk to all these young people who are creating this incredibly innovating banking applications, right? And, And you'll hear this over and over, you know, where, you know, like first they'll say, you know, like, I can't explain to anybody why this control regulation is stupid. You know, I think the favorite one I've ever heard, which is um, having a business continuity plan for data stored in S3, you know, like which S3 is what, you know, 33 nines or something ridiculous. But then the other, the, the, the one that sort of comes up a lot, which is, you know, I can code this application in a week, but it's in the eight or nine weeks to go through like the paperwork, the spreadsheets, the service management stuff. And then, you know, from a leadership standpoint, from simple for me, like, again, like, you know, my uh, total income is myself, right? <laughs> my family making sure I got food on the table and a warm, but, but, and, you know, like, again, like you said earlier, like it's one thing to, to sort of look from one side and say that's stupid, then get over to see what it is. So it's easy for me to say, you know, why can't leadership look at, you know, a systems level at like, you know, it's as simple as we've got constraints that are basically 70% of the time that we're using. And I'm trying to save money. So 70% or, you know, 80, 70% of all our work is, is this thing and isn't making us better. You know, those are, to me, that, that my final report to these companies are that simple. They usually, you know, pay me and then throw it in the dust pile. But, but like you've got, you know, you admittedly, everybody in this organization believes that you have 70% toil and there is no evidence that that toil is making you more productive or you're getting better outcomes. Um, in fact, you could argue that time is taken away from other productive time, right. you know, so. Yeah, I think people confuse, um, maybe it's the same calendar problem, right? Busyness for outcomes. It's not, Yeah, yeah. right? You know, to my early, you know, analog of my very frustrated manager couldn't figure out why he was in meetings all the time and this other guy wasn't, you know, the other leader was getting outcomes and it's not, it's not a race for how much, you know, busy you do, how much busy work, how many meetings you go to, how many PowerPoints you produce or you know, the code or whatever, whatever you know, <laughs> um, it's, it's how you get the result. And so I think even on the process front, uh, you know, I have like a sort of leadership philosophy I share with my team. And one of my ideas is the process is not the point the result is right. So if the process does not get the result, ditch the process, fix the process, the process is not the point. Well, that goes back to like sort of the PDSA and, you know, the scientific thinking, right? Like that is that the process is really just the hypothesis of that. It yeah, it's the hypothesis of how you get the outcome. <coughs> and if it doesn't get you the outcome or it gets the outcome, but not as well, not as fast or whatever, then change it, right? right. I think we take a lot of that. Things get really um, codified very easily as like, this is how it's done here. This is how things are done here. We have to do it this way. Even compliance stuff. I mean, I have to own um, all of our, you know, compliance and we, you know, we have financial compliance and we're a publicly listed company. So then we have socks and then we, you know, support other um, security, um, you know, things we have lots, right. And little Venn diagram of all the audit controls that I have to manage. And even there you have choices. There's, I mean, sometimes you don't, sometimes like it's very specific and you must do ABC. All right, fine. I'll do ABC. But lots of times you have, you know, it's, it's demonstrate you have this control. That's right. That's you right. like, you know, I, I push back sometimes even on the continuous delivery about like, well, I can't do continuous. I can't have a developer push to production because we have separation of duties. So I thought, right. well, actually wait on, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you just mean that a single person right, can't right. put something into production without a second person authorizing it. That doesn't mean it must be manual. 
And that doesn't even mean it has to cross a team boundary, right? Just needs means that there needs to be a second person who authorized, you know? So is that, you know, maybe your pull request process can serve as that audit control. And by the way, it's in GitHub with a hash, you know, it's pretty auditable. So, you know, I think there was a lot of folks that said, well, I can't do this because that compliance. And it turns right. out that that's, that's a misunderstanding of what the actual requirement, the requirement. Or it's, a, it's an inherited, like, you know, that, that sort of the, um, the, the monkeys exercise, right. You don't even know yeah. why you're, you're um, Oh yeah, it is. And, and there is, you know, and I think the compliance is tricky sometimes because the auditors that come in to review this, especially some of the financial controls, you know, they're accountants, they're not software right. engineers. Right. Yeah. So you're yeah. trying to explain to somebody who's, this is not their area of expertise that this satisfies this other thing, right? So people go to the default answer that is sort of like the industry norm because it's easier. Um, but, you know, but I find that generally speaking, like you can even challenge those things. Like, yeah, like no, I, I, but the outcome, if you can demonstrate that you get the outcome and this is reliable and you're not like playing shenanigans with it, you know, you can process and prove things that are related to. But that's leadership, you know, right? There are people that are willing to take risks in positions that, at a level where, you know, like challenging those things at that, you know, we, you know, we have friends that are in higher positions in banks, right. And there's some that just will just like status quo. <laughs> and there are others yeah. that are continually challenging the notion of, of those things, particularly in sort of regulatory control. The one thing I, um, I, I wanted to sort of circle in on, and you know, we can sort of round up on this is, you know, I was listening to one of our early podcasts and I thought this was a really uh, you know, so Deming has um, system profound knowledge, and we talk about systems thinking, and um, but the, his theory of psychology is interesting. You know, and and you had uh, hit on that that when you're trying to make change, you have to understand like there are beliefs based on the role, and then there are deeply held beliefs, and you have to sort of understand. That's like sort of a really nice way of explaining Deming's theory. Of psychology. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I, I do because. Um... Well, like, for instance, I, I will always say, you know, I have a, a, a deeply held belief <laughs> in things like DevOps and systems thinking. You know, if somebody tried to come to me and say, that's stupid, yeah. there's a new, I, my reaction probably wouldn't be super great. <laughs> I probably would not be very open to somebody challenging some of that. That's pretty deeply held in terms of, you know, my entire leadership career coming up with a systems thinking, right, as an example. Um, but sometimes you hold something because it is your role. And I think that is the, um, you know, you are where you sit. And in organizations, I, that to my point of being the software person and being the infrastructure person, when I was the software person, my job was mm-hmm. to get my builds into production quickly. And so those issues were not, you know, production issues were not my issues. When I'm in production, it's my job to keep operating that thing once you put it into production. And I'm worried about how's it going to scale? How's it going to like, you know, how's it going to perform? What's it going to do? You know, so um, that's because that's my role and that's the mission I've been given. And so I think sometimes what happens in, um, you know, Dominica Durandis always calls this the misaligned middle, right? Sometimes what happens organizationally is that managers have been given Sometimes there's just not alignment in the organization. Managers have actually been given missions that do not align with each other. That does happen. Um, Sometimes deliberately, even, which is, (laughs) you know, your your job is to secure it and your job is, you know, sort of like let let the battle bots figure it out. Yeah, we we, sometimes organizational like fault lines are driven deliberately almost. But, um, but there's even, you know, about that, people sort of say, well, this is my role, this is my mission. And that shapes sort of a set of beliefs that you hold because you're accountable to this thing that if I put you in a different seat, you know, I, <laughs> and I think that surprises people sometimes as companies, you know, in, in the history of a company, you'll have somebody, um, you know, in a role, um, like I had at one point, you know, a, my, my boss went to another part of the organization and one of my colleagues, he was, you know, sort of like fighting against us on some topic was like, how could he do that? He used to be us. I'm like, because he's not us. <laughs> he's not. It's not his job anymore to defend yeah. our position. Yeah. It's his yeah. job to run his own area. And I, that happens. And it's sort of like, this is normal. Like, this is like, you have to understand that that's going to be a natural reaction, that people are going to 
look at things through the lens of where they sit and what beliefs they come to the table with and and also what's going to make them successful in this company you know like what's going to make them you know their perception uh, of that too right which then gets into a whole nother you know sort of like you know sort of bonuses and mbos and all that but but i think so what you know what i what i I hear from you is as a good leader you have to sort of dissect those sort of levels of biases right like that one the first bias is okay i can probably it'd be easier for me to change an organization that the beliefs that are based on where they sit because then I can just rearrange the chairs in some way or yeah I mean that's why people reorg right right, or even (laughs) sort of but that's one of them right yeah or even create some type of you know sort of um you know matrix or whatever type or all the different techniques to sort of right to shift that um in fact in the early days of devops like you the one of the things you were talking about earlier one of the first hacks that uh you know uh you know, writing the DevOps handbook was, took like a really long time, right? And, you know, every once in a while, my wife will ask me, which part are you write? Like, yeah, you know, they're sort of all over the place because it was rewritten four or five times, right? But but one of the first sort of things we put in these sort of dues was the idea of embedded developers in operations, right, just right. to sort of force that crack in right. the Right, you were forcing, you were forcing at that point, you know, a leader that owned both. That own this together. And they could explain stuff as simple as, you know what, when you write the log directory structures, it would be better to put it in this format. Right. Why would we do that? Well, you know, the developers would actually, it would make their life easier for the way, you know, that that kind of stuff. But um, but I do think that um being able to layer those biases, right? And in that um the, the things that you can shuffle the chairs. And there are things that are deeply held, which still, you know, need to be addressed, but that's just a whole nother sort of level of. Yeah. And I think even, I mean, there's probably grades of, you know, gradients of deeply. Of course there is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and and I think like, it's also, I, I often, it's also a confidence thing, you know, as I'd say too, like a lot of times as I would do for these transformations, we're going to work a new way. Like you probably spent 20 years working the other way. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, like you're not going to one, you're not going to master in a day. You're not. That's a that's a scary thing for any of us right. to go leave behind what we're known for, what we know we're good at, what we're comfortable with, you know, leap over you, the cliff. You left companies. I, I, I'm i sure you've had the same experience that I've had when you leave the doors. Just as you get past the door, you're like what in the heck did I just do? You know, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a scary, there is a scary moment when you don't, you know, you're new here and you don't That's know right. how things work. Like it's a very, um, it's very unsettling, even, even in the same company in a different role. Like, yeah. I, you know, like, Hey, I don't really, you know, this is outside my, my zone. I think, um, you know, I think it's kind of a, like, there are lots of things that a lot of leaderships like, you know, OKRs or reworks are trying to get people aligned in a way that their like their day to day and the corporate goal, you know, ladder up in the right way. Um, I think those are powerful. But I think when you sometimes need to do like a more expansive change, you need to change the culture. Um, you know, I, I, I actually forget who I would attribute this talk to, but it was maybe many years ago. At uh, you know, like five six years ago, I was talking about some of the stuff that was done you know, in the federal government to do some of the transformation early on with Agile and DevOps. And they were talking about this confidence thing about the sort of like crossing the chasm about if you're helping, you know, those people that just embrace new, I think you were probably one of them, right? You just like new stuff and you like want to learn everything you can about it. But that's not most people. Like most people just sort of kind of go on their, you know, lives. And if you're trying to help people like over this, like, you know, there's the early adopters, there's the early majority, and then there's sort of the laggards. If you're trying to help the early majority and the, you know, this everyone who's not this early adopter, right. you've got to do something to move things, like to make them get to that comfort level. That's training and that's um, peer pressure. I mean, I think I like even just, like you know whether you feel about vaccinations but like if your job was to get an entire society vaccinated 10 percent of people will 
do whatever, right? Shoot me up with the experimental, you know. The next group will just wait to see if everybody else. Right? Other people okay. will be like, well, once everybody else is doing it, I'll do it, you yeah. know. And a few people are like, well, I guess this is the, I guess I have to do this to work here. So I guess I'll get one. And then there's a set of people that will just always resist. Yeah. And I think that's a spectrum that you could probably take any major change initiative you're trying to do. And it, it will yeah. plot out on that chart. You're going to have the people that will do the shiny thing because it's shiny. Yeah, right. Or, yeah, or you're, <laughs> or early adopters who will be convinced because it's better. Like they'll actually buy it well, on its value. That's the scientific mindset, right? Like yeah, I'm going to basically methodically look at this. I'm going to try it. Yeah, and, and this looks better, right? Yeah. So that's like the 20% of yeah, your population, yeah, yeah. people that say this is better. Okay, I get it. This is better. Everybody else is going to go, well, I get it because John's doing it and John's a pretty cool guy. So mm-hmm. John thinks this is cool. I guess I'll give it a go. And then I always say, don't of- take that approach for me standing in grocery lines, though. Because <laughs> whatever <laughs> you know, line I pick is always going to be the longest. There's line. like a, you know, so there's there's a peer pressure factor, right? Yeah, yeah, peer pressure is yeah. huge, even in companies, right? The peer pressure yeah, yeah, goes, yeah. gets you so far. So a lot of your adoption needs to be peer pressure oriented too, right? That point, like not just convincing people it's better, but like peer pressure. And then once you get a like good momentum with the peer pressure model, now you've got to deal with people who are like kind of just not paying attention and not following social cues. And that's a cohort of people where you need to say, this is how we do it. This is a policy. We need a standard operating procedure. And then once they go, well, I guess this is like the standard around here. You know, that's the monkey thing. I guess this is how we do it around here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. We'll do it too. Yeah, that's right. And you will probably always find if you were to do a transformational organization, I call them rocks. You will have people that will not be moved. Right, right. You know, right. They, they will not. Right. They're not 80%, you know, it's not 90%. It's it's a very small, it's usually 10, maybe yeah, 20% small, of an organization. Yeah. It's actually a very small percentage of people that are just immovable like that. And, and that's the thing too, I think that, um, you know, so we're, we're getting an hour because I actually wanted to, I think wanted to like me, I think me and you are both good fans of uh, the Cotter, John Cotter as right. you know, the organizational change model, but we'll save that for another discussion. But, but I think that's the thing, like a lot of people say people hate change and, and I'm like, yeah, that's not necessarily true. Like to your point, it, it's this, uh, it's this um, sort of bell curve of, yeah. of you know, innovative limb or whatever you want to call it. Right. That, that um, the truth of the matter is, yeah, there are people that are just going to change. Right. And then there are people that like, you know, you gotta give me a little more because you haven't been great at this the last five times you did this. So they're really very, so because that's the other thing people don't realize is in organizations where, you know, some younger person comes in, we need to DevOps. And like, yeah, you know what? This organization the last 15 or 20 years has been coming up with these buzzword things. And so we're not totally against it. We're definitely worth listening to the logic behind it. But we're going to, and then you got the real cynical, like I was doing that back in the eighties, you know, I, this is yeah, not, right. like that. <laughs> you could change them too. And then there's yeah. the ones that are just going to. I would first. actually say that uh, I think the people that will not change, sometimes you are, I've been surprised by people that I thought this person's never changing yeah. uh, and they do. Um, and there are other people that just like, can't. And I think I'm back to my deeply held beliefs. I think, there are some people where certain they they do happen to hold deeply held beliefs. It's going to make it harder for this particular idea to take. Okay. Them, okay. You know, well, in whatever. that case, though, that instead of thinking it's just going to be incredibly hard and you know, everybody's going to be against this, to there's going to be a real small percentage against it. And I've always been like the like the sort of John Osbar school of like you never fire anybody for for sort of either making mistakes or. Um, but I think there's a point. But but having a bimetal thought, like the people who want it and the people who don't, and like we have to get rid of the people that don't, like yeah, like, I think they have a fair shot. But then you can get to, you know, I've heard I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but people who just are not tall enough for the ride. I mean, you get to a point. No, I think where, that's true, right? <laughs> but I think that I think it's you know, truth be told, in an organization of people that you are managing, um, I, I hate the idea of like certain companies that have forced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a little much, but at any given point in time, you've got you know some rock stars you're like trying to like <laughs> take care of and give new challenges to, and you have some performers there that you're going, mm, 
if they left tomorrow <laughs> or I might help them out the door. Yeah. Um, and that's just like, that's, that's the same bell curve problem. Right. And, yeah. and I think that in the transformation, like a lot of times, you know, people will follow you with them and, and it's more than I'm you always, think actually. Right. I think more, more than, than you think, more yeah. than you think is actually my, if you give them that competence and that comfort level, like if you invest in them on right. this journey, if you just sort of show up one day and go new thing, you know, <laughs> gotta be done like Tuesday. That's, yeah, yeah, that's not probably the way to get people over, so, you know, for the hump. <laughs> well, it's been great, and I we could go on another hour. I do try to. I I don't adhere to like you have to keep podcasts short. If you like this podcast, you'll listen. But same token, there is a point at which I try to be courteous and <laughs> try not to go over an hour. I know. Well, it used to be the length of my commute, and so now it's the length of my walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, well, I think that maybe that's the change of behavior. <laughs> why people like long ones because the longer it is, the more they can get exercise again. But anyway, um, it's always an awesome pleasure to talk to you. Um, I always learn a lot. Where do people find you? Um, are there any sort of presentations you're planning on doing or just in general? Yeah. Uh, gosh, I did a couple. Re- I haven't really done, you know, the virtual conference thing is kind of a, I'm looking forward to getting back to some. Yeah. And me, me both, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm planning at attending reInvent. I'm not speaking or anything. I'm just going to be hanging around Vegas. Uh, but uh, um, you know, probably best way um, uh, probably the main one I stay, you know, post things updates to is uh, LinkedIn these days. Um you know, the nice thing about being at PagerDuty is we're growing like crazy. So I'm, I'm on LinkedIn trying to hire and recruit <laughs> more, than I'm, more than I'm anywhere else. And, uh, um, uh, you know, certainly look forward to kind of hearing uh, this podcast and others. Yeah. Well, thanks, Paula. It's great. All right. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.